They say Memorial Day is the time to figure out what your fantasy team has. It's coming right up, but is that so? We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 19th. It's show number 19 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We will talk with Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire about assessing your chances, about some disappointing hitters and some interesting pitchers. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Freddie Freeman, A.J. Pollock, Hunter Pence, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Robinson Cano, Aroldis Chapman, Carlos Gomez, and Yunel Escobar. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Colorado outfield prospect Raymal Tapia. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at St. Louis sixth starter Luke Weaver. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Pittsburgh infielder Max Moroff and Boston starter Hector Velasquez. And in our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at Max Scherzer, Hugh Darvish, and other weekend starters. In Master Notes, I'll be talking about changes in team stolen base go rates. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Is an Alex Gordon bounce back going to happen? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Devastating news this week for Freddie Freeman owners. This is a really fine player. Uh, He was injured when he got hit by a pitch in that contentious Toronto-Atlanta series that was going on. He broke his wrist. He's going to be out at least eight weeks. I've heard as much as ten. Nick, he was off to an MVP-level start, we have to say. He was on track to maybe 40 home runs, 100 runs, 100-plus RBIs, well over 300 for a batting average, and he might even have stolen 20 bases. Instead, he's on the shelf for eight weeks, like I said, maybe 10. Uh, Phil Hertz covered this story for Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. What's going on here with Freddie Freeman, and what does Atlanta do to fill that huge gap? Yeah, you know, certainly a devastating, uh, devastating blow for Atlanta and for his fantasy owners because he, as you said, he was off to an MVP type start. Was this a, a triple crown start? Maybe we, we will never know now. Um, but yeah, Atlanta to fill the gap is going to probably ha- go to, to a player called Rio Ruiz, who will, uh, uh, most people have probably never heard of, not among the top 15 prospects in Atlanta coming into the year. Uh, but Atlanta does have a very deep farm system, but a 751 OPS so far at AAA, uh, and so he'll likely come come in, and we'll still see if he can uh, if he can begin to fill the gap there. So um, our projections on Ruiz are not all that good. A 23 year old left-handed hitter at this point, we're projecting four home runs, 23 RBIs, 237 batting average. So uh, a 7D kind of player rating by our minor league staff. So not someone I think we're going to want to. Uh, to pick up right away. And we should say that 7D in the player rating system used by the scout team at BaseballHQ.com, the 7 refers to the sort of peak potential of the player. 7 would be a a 
full-time regular type of player. But that D rating means he's only got a relatively small chance of attaining that kind of potential, and probably you're looking at more of a part-time type guy. And Nick, wouldn't you think that would be the case of if he's hitting uh, a 750 OPS in AAA? Usually that number drops by, what, 20% or so when they come up to the major leagues, 15 20%. We are not looking at a, the second coming of Freddie Freeman, let's put it that way. Yeah, very definitely not. I think that's not, you know, if you're a fantasy owner, it's not, uh, you don't look to Ruiz to replace Freddie Freeman. You're you're out there looking for something else. So very definitely uh, not the second coming of Freddie Freeman. Uh, uh, Atlanta's going to be uh, hurting, to say the least, at first base for uh, while Freddie Freeman is out. Now, uh, sometimes owners look at a situation like this and they'll go to uh, the Freddie Freeman owner, especially if the Freddie Freeman owner happens to be a, a contender in a uh, in a keeper league and say, look, I'll give you somebody who's actually going to play and you give me Freddie Freeman. But we should caution uh, uh, fantasy owners out there that even when Freddie Freeman comes back, there are two issues. First of all, Atlanta figures to be well out of the race by the time that Freddie Freeman is ready to come back. They may just say, look, take the rest of the year off or, or take it real slow. And second, wrist injuries sometimes have a really bad effect on hitters, especially power hitters. Yeah, they can. And I, I agree with you. I, you know, it's one of those situations where I would not expect him to come back at full strength necessarily this year. He might, and that would be wonderful. Uh, but we may not see the Freddie Freeman we were seeing at the start of the year until next year, if we see it at all. So I, I agree. I think it's not someone to jump on with the idea that he's going to come back strong from this injury. And they have Jace Peterson, who has uh, a outside shot at playing time at first base, an inside shot. Is he going to get some uh, playing time over there? He probably will get some time too. But you know, you're looking at Jace Peterson at this point. Uh, uh, we're we're at 81. He's had 81 at bats, no home runs, two stolen bases, seven RBIs, batting 210. So again, not someone you're going to want to jump on uh, as a replacement. Yeah, Jace Peterson. Even if he does get playing time, I, we've upped his uh, projected balance of the year projections but he's still only in there for maybe two or three home runs 20 25 rbis again not a replacement for freddie freeman but you know when we say that nick really freddie freeman's an irreplaceable type of player short of trading for mike trout yeah he is he really is i mean he is he uh was really coming into his own this season uh and so definitely a kind of irreplaceable player and of course, he played for Team Canada in the uh, World Baseball Classic, so a particular sad moment for us up here north of the border. Uh, another name player heading to the DL in Arizona, but a familiar name to the DL. Outfielder A.J. Pollock suffered a groin injury against Pittsburgh early this week. He, too, was off to a pretty good start, at least in April. He had 10 stolen bases in the first month of the season after missing all of 2016 pretty much with a broken elbow, and then he came back, and then he got a groin issue again and missed uh, all the last 12 games. Rob Carroll covered this whole story in playing time today for BaseballHQ.com. So who gets the playing time in Arizona? And Nick, it's not so much who gets it in center field, but uh, A.J. Pollock was at the top of the batting order, so who gets those at-bats? Right, he was indeed. And so uh, luckily this is not going to be the same kind of, at least we hope this is not going to be the same kind of uh, a problem that uh, that Atlanta has with Freddie Freeman. Uh, Pollock will hopefully not be out uh, a long time with this groin injury, although, you know, there's an injury history on A.J. Pollock, so he could be, he may may not be back as quickly as we would hope he would be. Um, it looks as though the playing time initially is going to go to Raymond Fuentes, uh, and, and there's a name you actually may want to pay some attention to. Um, Raymond Fuentes is, uh, is only a 6A player, a kind of fourth outfielder, reserve outfielder, but 
Uh, coming up from uh, from AAA, Reno uh, was hitting 376, uh, 481 OPS. Uh, not a great power guy, but nine stolen bases, and he will probably will may take could could become that leadoff hitter, and uh, certainly can swipe some bags for you. So if you're looking for stolen bases, uh, Fuentes may be a guy to look at early on. Yeah, he's uh, went right into Pollock's leadoff spot. I noticed that. Uh, what about uh, Gregor Blanco, also a left-handed hitter? You know, Gregor Blanco is a possibility as well. I think for uh, for getting additional playing time and may get uh, almost as much additional playing time as 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 Fuentes does. And uh, Gregor Blanco may be a um, a little better bet in terms of actually producing something for a fantasy owner, but. We're not looking at a huge projection, even adding Gregor Blanco's playing time, adding in some additional playing time while Pollock is out. We're still looking at only 91 at bats for the season. So uh, not a guy who's going to make a huge dent in any of your any of your stats. Rob Carroll also mentioning Chris Owings, who's off to a pretty decent start, might get some reps out there as well. Uh, in San Francisco, Hunter Pence used to be an Ironman of sorts. I remember him playing year in, year out every game. He played all the team's first 37 games this season, but from 2014 to 2016, Nick, he's lost 170 games to various kinds of injuries, including a right hamstring strain. Now he has a left hamstring strain, and he's back on the DL. Rob Carroll again with the coverage and playing time today. So first, Nick, uh, how serious is this latest injury to Hunter Pence? Well, you know, hopefully it's not a very serious injury. We're, we're looking at a 5% reduction in playing time. Hopefully he'll be back, uh, maybe just a, just a few days, uh, over the, uh, the, the 10 day minimum that he's, he's gone on the DL for. So we're hopefully not looking at a lot of playing time lost for Hunter Pence. But as you say, he's been on the DL a lot. So even if we get him back in there, uh, is he likely going to stay there the rest of the season? You know, there's that old adage that, uh, uh, that, that, that we say at Baseball HQ, chronically injured guys never suddenly get healthy. And so um, I, I would not count on Hunter Pence being coming back and being the, uh, the Iron Man and not missing a game for the rest of the season. Who does figure to gain the playing time with uh, Hunter Pence on the bench for now and certainly maybe for a longer term, as you suggest, because he has that injury history. We can't really count on him at all anymore. Somebody's got to play for San Francisco in the outfield. Uh, who is it? It looks like it'll be Mac Williamson coming up to uh, uh, to do that sort of thing. Mac Williamson was uh, actually had a good chance of getting a job out of uh, out of spring training, but uh, had a quad injury and uh, was his delayed his 2017 debut. Uh, was originally supposed to be in a left field job share. So uh, Mac Williamson is a guy that we could certainly look at uh, as as someone who could gain some playing time and. Uh, maybe actually have have an effect. Uh, so far, three hits and ten at bats. Uh, so he's starting off okay. In terms of projections, we're looking uh, at a balance of uh, 211 at bats, eight home runs, 28 RBIs. That all looks pretty good. But uh, also, uh, we're looking at probably at a BA down around 220. I was going to say, uh, I remember looking at Mac Williamson in the past more for daily play uh, once in a while. Uh, he's got good power. That's the thing. 117 PX. He makes pretty good hard contact, but he doesn't make a lot of contact, unfortunately. Uh, his strikeout rate is usually over 30%. He's, he's, he's striking out uh, a little too often to have that decent batting average. Right. Very definitely. And so, the, you know, he can give you some power, but there are also some guys out there who could probably give you power with better batting average. So, uh uh, I would guess that unless you're in a very deep league, Mac Williamson would not be uh, your first choice. 
No, I don't imagine, except in a deep league, you're right. Uh, Stephen Nickran, one of our favorite columnists, writes the Batters Buyers Guide column, and he covered some early deep league targets this week, among them a couple of interesting catchers in the National League. Let's start in Los Angeles. How about Austin Barnes? You know, given the paucity of catchers out there, if you're if you're in a two-catcher league, uh, you can really start to scramble at, behind that first catcher, and Austin Barnes is certainly a guy to look at. Uh, Austin Barnes has had a very tiny sample so far. He's not going to play a lot, but in 37 at-bats so far, a 913 OPS. Uh, he's drawing walks at a good rate. He's hitting the ball hard. And guess what? Austin Barnes can steal a base or two. So, you know, as a second catcher, if you're struggling with some guy who's hitting about 210, take a look at Austin Barnes. And guess what? He might also qualify at second base. So a kind of interesting guy to look at on a second catcher uh, sort of deal. Yeah, as a second catcher, I don't know about as a second baseman. I, the uh, infield is unusually strong this season, as a lot of people have noticed. Uh, and imagine if you get a guy who can who can catch for you on a fantasy team, he's probably more valuable doing that than he could possibly be out at second base. Uh, you mentioned those bags. That's pretty interesting. Uh, Stephen also shines a spotlight in Philadelphia on catcher Andrew Knapp. Yeah, another guy to take a look at. A, a, a uh, In the first 32 at bats at 879 OPS, which again... Uh, isn't isn't uh, a bad thing and has not been hacking an 18% walk rate a 75% contact rate a good batting eye so it doesn't have a huge power ceiling uh, of that some other catcher backups might have but uh, there's some certainly some upside in Andrew Knapp and so again if you're looking for a guy who's not going to hurt you in that second catcher slot uh, Andrew Knapp's a guy to look at. They both have similar projections. I think uh, Austin Barnes probably slightly higher on the uh, batting average, and you mentioned those stolen bases. Of the two, if I had to choose one, I think I'd take Barnes. But as a second catcher, Knapp looks like he has some upside potential, and sometimes when you're trying to figure out who you want on your roster, you're not really looking at what is expected. You're kind of being a little bit hopeful, and maybe Andrew Knapp's got some hope. Right, very definitely. I mean, you know, if you're if you're looking to, to just kind of fill that, lower end slot. Uh, Andrew Knapp's a guy that uh, that might help you more than hurt you. Finally, Nick Steven, Nick Round also covers the pitchers in his buyer's guide column, and one of his early deep league targets on the pitching side is in San Diego, of all places, right-hander Luis Perdomo. Yeah, Luis Perdomo looks like a kind of an interesting guy. Uh, the highest ground ball rate of any pitcher in Major League Baseball with at least 20 innings pitch, a 70% ground ball rate. So, you know, that when a guy's getting that many ground balls, uh, that gives him a, a something to build on, and a, a not a bad, uh, not a bad strikeout rate. Seven point nine DOM at that point, a ten point two swinging strike rate. Some intriguing upside, I think, for Louis Perdomo, especially pitching in San Diego. So when he's pitching at home, uh, there's a guy that could uh, could do some shutdown kind of pitching. I'm not a National League guy, Nick, and so I'm not familiar with how the Padres are this year. A guy who gets a lot of ground balls depends very heavily on the infield defense. Is San Diego okay in that regard? I, they're, they're okay. I wouldn't say they're great, but they're okay. Uh, Perdomo started out with, with a little bit of bad luck, a 419 uh, ERA, but a 272 uh, expected on run average. So uh, things are going to get better for Louis Perdomo, and because of that, that kind of slow start, and certainly that's not as bad as some pitchers we've looked at, um, you might be able to pick him up very cheaply at this point. And he's, uh, he's done fairly well in restricting the walks. I know uh, so far this year he's given up just uh, 10 walks in 34 innings. Again, not fantastic, but uh, 2.6 walks per nine is pretty good. Yeah, it is. That's not, that's not bad at all. I mean, it's not going to kill you. And when you're getting a decent strikeout rate, uh, that's, that's probably okay. Uh, and 
we're looking at, at a really good first pitch strike rate for for Perdomo, and that that's good too. So uh, I think a sixty seven percent first pitch strike rate, which is really very very good. It is, and it uh, it's a good predictor of overall strikeout rates because we, you know they say the most important pitch you can throw is strike one, and he's doing that with uh, some consistency. So that's a, that's a. Um, a check mark on his side of the ledger, shall we say. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's slide over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hey, PD. Good to be back. Our listeners will notice you're not your usual dulcet-toned self. Uh, this week you're on the phone, and that's because you're on the road. You're in Minneapolis, and I understand you took in the doubleheader on Thursday between the Rockies and the Twins, so how did you like Target Field? Oh, I, I love Target Field, and, and yeah, the, they had a Wednesday rainout here that worked out real well for me because I wasn't planning on going then, and I got to see the day-night doubleheader here. Uh, Target Field surprised me how nice it was. It was uh, I mean, the weather was cold. Obviously, I expected that. It's May in the Midwest, but uh, it's a nice design. It's easy to get around in, wide concourses, solid food. Uh, they make club seating very uh, attractive here because there's lots of indoor and, and uh, floor-to-window or floor-to-ceiling windowed space uh, behind it where people can get warm and eat and drink and watch the game. Um, wonderful place. Uh, the food was good. Uh, the games were good. It was a, it was a fun day yesterday. So the uh, Hennepin County taxpayers got him, got themselves a decent deal on this uh, whole thing? Yeah, hard to say. Taxpayers never really get themselves as good a deal as promised. But uh, as far as parks goes, it could be worse. It could be U.S. cellular. In fact, uh, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, I was, in, uh, I was doing this show from uh, Chicago a couple of Mays ago, and uh, I was not thrilled with U.S. cellular. We had the same kind of iffy weather. But uh, I think Target Field was what U.S. cellular should have been. And you also happened to see Jose Barrios pitch a real gem. I did. Uh, he was impressive from the get-go. Um, he, he worked quickly out there. The weather was in his favor, mind you. It was a, it was a very nice February night in May here. Um, and uh, he worked up and down in the zone. Uh, he had a fastball with a lot of late life on it uh, that, uh, that, that kept its quality all the way up to the very end. He was taken out in the eighth inning. Um, it, was a, it was a fun night. Well, uh, it's fun and uh, entertaining to be at the ballpark, not so much if you're in the front offices in the American League these days. Another week, another spate of injuries, and let's start in Seattle, where second baseman Robinson Cano is on the DL with a strained quad muscle. You know, Jock, in the last 10 full seasons, that's 1,620 games, Cano has missed 26 games in total. This injury thing is really mowing baseball players down. It sounds like this might be a relatively minor sort of 10-day thing. I heard Cano's already worked out and hitting off the tee. What's the upshot of all this for the Mariners in the meantime? Well, in Cano's absence, uh, Taylor Motters got, got extended playing time, and uh, he started out very well in April. He hasn't done nearly as well recently. He's not making as much contact or authoritative contact. Uh, he's likely to uh, go back to being a super sub off the bench. He's, he's only 9 for 40 in May, 225 batting average, no homers. Um, and his best shot now when Cano comes back, which is, which is expected sometime uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, um, will be at one of the outfield corners now if, uh, if Ben Gamble and Gil Heredia continue to slide. Uh, a lot of these guys are starting to come off their fast starts, so uh, 
Motter looks like the one who's going to lose playing time when uh, when Cano returns. It's nice also f- that uh, we don't have to talk about another injury to the Mariner pitching staff, but they have had some changes in the bullpen, the entire rotation probably now on the DL. So what's going on in that bullpen in Seattle? Yeah, Edwin Diaz, surprisingly to, to some, uh, has been moved out of the closer role. It was interesting. I wrote something about this in March, how um, guys like Diaz, they're not sure things. I mean, he had a partial, partial season as closer. He was very impressive. Um, he, he still gets a lot of swings and misses, but he's getting fewer ground balls, more walks, and more home runs. They've been a problem over his first 15 innings, uh, as suggested by the 5.28 ERA. Six walks per nine innings through his first 15 innings pitched. Uh, the problem with Seattle is is that Steve Sishak, uh, the closer who who Diaz replaced last year, he already blew his first save opportunity replacing Diaz now in grand style, and now they're going to have to start experimenting with other names like lefty James Pazas, who's actually pitched better than both of them to date. Uh, the bottom line here, again, is that the Mariner staff is a real mess, and they're they're making it up as they go along. I saw a recommendation on Pazos recently, and he might be available in free agent pools. Should be some interesting bidding this weekend in such leagues. More bullpen news this time across the continent in New York, where the Yankees lost a role as Chapman to the DL. He'll miss at least a month with rotator cuff inflammation. And any time you hear rotator cuff anything, it sounds like bad news. Uh, Dellen Betances moves up to the closer role. How does that project for the the Yankees for Dylan Betance's owners. You know, so far so good. He's picked up a save in his first opportunity. Uh, I think everybody who's who watches baseball realizes that uh, Betances has the physical skills and the swing and miss uh, necessary for the role. But but he's become a little bit of an e-ticket beginning since late last year. That uh, walks per nine rate is growing. Uh, his his first pitch strikes are way down. He's walked nine hitters in his first twelve innings. Now, fortunately, he also has twenty two strikeouts, so that'll make up for it. But we're talking about a lot of high pitch counts that are going to hurt him eventually, and particularly in the long term if he can't get this under control. Uh, he's, he's obviously the guy to hold right now while Chapman's out, but uh, his owner should strap in for a ride. And speaking of owners, uh, the president of the Yankees during the salary negotiations with Dellen Betances this last offseason, Randy Levine, said, and I'm quoting, Dellen Betances is not a closer, because he was asking for closer money, and uh now that Dellen Betances is the closer, I wonder if they're going to be looking at any other alternatives. Yeah, that was kind of a nasty situation. And, and if they need alternatives, I mean, the Yankee bullpen has been just terrific this year. I'm looking uh, down the BPV column, or the, yeah, the BPV column on our, uh, on our team link page. Uh, lots of 100-plus BPVs, a couple of 90s. Uh, you've got Chad Green has been really good. Tyler Clipper's been good. Jonathan Holder's been really good. A lot of these guys could probably step in and perform a credible job if Batanzas falls flat. Uh, I know one of the names in there is Tyler Clippert. I picked him up a little while ago when uh, Chapman started looking a, a bit shaky. Who else is the was there that might get a, a look if uh, Batanzas struggles? Well, Chad Green over the short run, he's pitched eight innings. Uh, he's struck out uh, uh, ten ten batters. Uh, he's he's got a. a uh, he hasn't allowed an earned run yet. His, his expected ERA is 1.74. Um, he's been he's been particularly good. Uh, Jonathan Holder has a bit of a larger sample, 17 innings, a 2.16 ERA, nine strikeouts per nine innings. Um, the list goes on and on. Uh, the Yankees have a pretty good bullpen. 
I have Holder as well, and I'm glad of it. Uh, down in Texas, Jock, center fielder Carlos Gomez, who had been struggling anyways, is out four to six weeks with a hamstring strain. A lot of hamstrings these days as well, aren't there? Uh, they called up Jared Hoying. He went four for four in one game, but other than that, not so much. Yeah, he's he's start he's made three starts in center field. He's he's really an athletic guy um, who um, he, he doesn't have a lot of great upside. He's he's 27 years old. Um, he, he's he struggles to make contact, uh, um, and he he like you said he's with the, in the three starts he was one for seven otherwise. He can do a lot of things. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how long he continues to start for Gomez in center field. Um, the Rangers obviously have Delano de Shields they could put there. Defensively, not great for Texas pitching. I'm guessing the Rangers wish right about now that they still had Lewis Brinson. Oh, I imagine they do, uh, and it wouldn't be the first time that they thought that. Uh, Carlos Gomez will be missed. Uh, he hadn't been running as much as usual. It could be because of that hamstring, of course. Uh, over in Cleveland, more injury news in the outfield. Abraham Almonte, who is actually being uh, somewhat of a decent contributor, is going to miss three to five weeks with a strained biceps muscle. The big news here, Cleveland has called up prized prospect Bradley Zimmer, who already has a home run in his first couple of games. In the longer term, though, what can we expect from Bradley Zimmer, do you think? There's something of a comparison to Hoying, though. Zimmer has uh, much more upside, obviously, and he's a lot younger. Uh, in his first seven at-bats, uh, he's hit a homer and double and struck out four times. So it, it kind of gives you a glimpse of what he's going to offer. He's got plenty of power, uh, but some legitimate contact issues. He's a real athlete. His speed and athleticism show up in the nine stolen bases he had at AAA before his call-up. And the fact that Cleveland has him in center field over Lonnie Chisenhall speaks to his defense. So as our HQ call-up notes note, he's he's a true five-tool kind of guy. Now, with Almonte out for a significant period of time, he has a real opportunity to carve out some playing time, but he's going to have to overcome those contact issues. Uh, the athleticism gives him a fighting chance. Well, major league clubs seem to be tolerating low batting averages these days if a player has other tools to bring to the table. But if the other tools that if one of the other tools that's missing is the ability to put the bat on the ball, that affects more than just batting average. That affects everything. Yeah, that's right. He's not going to steal as many bases if he's not getting on base. Uh, he's uh, it, it's it's going to be an interesting next three weeks. Uh, but he has some opportunities, so there's something to be said for that. What about past tout darling uh, Tyler Naquin? I didn't think Naquin was given much of a chance at the beginning of the season. I think they demoted him after he was 4 for 17. They've never been thrilled with Naquin's defense in center field. Um, and they demoted him to the minors. He was tearing up AAA for a while down there, and his, and his numbers are still very good. Unfortunately, right now, he's on the DL with a back injury. I'm not sure how serious it is, but I, I think he's been there now for a couple of weeks, so... At least right now, Tyler Naquin isn't available. Your Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are making some news while you're out of town. They are the winners of the Doug Fister sweepstakes, if that's actually winning. How does Doug Fister fit in, and what's his prognosis for the Angels? Well, from what I'm hearing, Fister's agreed to be an uh, option to the minors uh, in order to, to um, get things together. He's clearly not uh, ready for the Angels yet, uh, um, he hasn't been pitching uh, competitively anywhere, and he's probably not, not going to step in immediately. He was pretty awful last year with Houston, uh, 4.64 ERA and 180 innings. 
His velocity was down to 87 miles an hour. It's a pretty typical profile when a guy like him starts losing uh, MPH. His ground balls go down, the home runs and walks go up, they start nibbling. The plus on him is that he stayed healthy last year, and he's had lots of rest. So, I mean, let's face it, the Angels need pitching like everybody else, probably more than everybody else. So, uh, you know, again, he's going to get opportunity, and, uh, and it's another arm that maybe the Angels can use somewhere. It's kind of a sad situation where the best thing you can say about the guy is that he's had a lot of rest recently because if he was any good, he wouldn't have had so much rest. But like you say, given the tattered state of the Angels rotation, a high ERA, low-velocity gopher baller should fit right in. Yeah, you know, obviously uh, on a rotation with Alex Meyer and Jesse Chavez, who who actually haven't pitched bad recently, uh, but anything can happen, particularly in the three weeks uh, that it's going to take Fister to get ready. uh, a lot's going to depend on who's pitching well and, and who's hurt. Injury obviously uh, resolve a lot of this stuff. Uh, I could see him in the rotation or in long relief. Uh, like a lot of clubs, like Seattle, like everyone else, the Angels are kind of making it up as they go along. I saw that the Angels also lost third baseman Yunel Escobar, another strained hamstring, another three to four weeks on the DL. How is this affecting the Angels lineup and who gets the PT? Well, Luis Valbuena is moving over from first base to third base, which... From a pitching staff standpoint, it's a big improvement defensively. Uh, Escobar is not a good defensive uh, third baseman, and Valbuena is uh, much better than average. Uh, C.J. Crone gets a reprieve uh, over at first base. He's probably going to be playing full-time there for the time being, given that uh, uh, Escobar is out and Val- Valbuena is going to be getting most of his bats against lefties over at third base. Uh, Jeffrey Marte will probably platoon a little bit with Valbuena, uh, getting at bats uh, against left-handed hitters, who Valbuena has never shown throughout his career that he could hit. I think he's got something like a two twenty three batting average career-wise there. So uh, it's, it's, qu- it's quite a turnaround. Uh, obviously, Crone owners were uh, singing the blues for a while there, and, uh, and now their guy has a little bit of life. A little bit of life. Uh, how possible, shall we say, is it that Jeffrey Marte, if he can uh, pick it up just a little bit, could replace Crone altogether? Um, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, Marte's power is pretty good. Crone uh, uh, is actually a, a pretty good hitter, and his his plate skills have improved uh, gradually over the past couple of years. Um, I think Crone's uh, I, 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 going to have to get hot. He's a streaky guy, but uh, I would still take Crone over Marte. Okay, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. How much longer are you going to be up in Minneapolis? I'm going to be here through Sunday. i uh, going to try to see the Twins play Kansas City on Saturday. Um, going to explore the city a little bit more, but uh, we'll be flying back to SoCal on Sunday. It's a beautiful area, a little better in uh, June and July than it is sometimes in May, from my experience. We used to go down to watch ball games in the old uh, Homer Dome back in the day, and uh, boy, you can't beat a Minneapolis uh, sunny July day, I'll tell you that. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, sometimes you just can't pick the months uh, that you go, but uh, I'm glad for the experience. Uh, it was a, it was an awfully fun day yesterday. Okay, Jock, thanks. We'll talk to you again from home next week. Okay, PD, see you. Jock Thompson is Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our feature interview, Talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up. Stay tuned on Baseball HQ Radio. Boogie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Trickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a well. It's been a couple of weeks. It's it's felt like it's been a long time. It has been a little while, but a little while is better than a long while, I guess. Uh, before we get started talking about individual players, because you have a lot of interesting uh, things online the last little while about individual players, I'm curious about how your teams are doing in your various experts leagues and NFBC. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I think we, we talked a little bit before we started recording. Uh, this is a very humbling thing we do here, both playing and analyzing, and. Uh, it's uh you know I, in, injuries have hit me in in the mixed labor in a big way. I'm starting to get some of my guys back, so we're starting to make a little bit of a, a, a headwards upwards in the standings. Tout Wars NL Tout Wars defending that championship too. Uh, lost Menace and Bumgarner early, which was a killer and uh, hard to come back from. Sort of middle of the pack, but in in both leagues with with so many injuries and so much weird stuff going on, all you can do is keep grinding and hope that I mean I don't want to hope you know injuries upon anybody that sort of thing. But eventually, these sort of things, if they don't even out, they, they level the playing field a little bit. So you just hang in there now, let things flesh out a little bit longer, and then, you know, two months left, see how you can manage the points. So hanging in in both, you know, letting things letting things happen. You know, with a 15-team league, you know, there'll be a couple teams that probably escape injury like I did last year, and they'll probably win it. But you do the best you can. And NFBC, it's it's similar, a similar scenario. Uh, everybody's been hurt with injuries. Um until yesterday, I was lamenting having taken Edwin Encarnacion over Freddie Freeman, and I had done the math, and if I'd taken Freeman, I'd be pretty happy about that team now. So uh, at this point, <laughs> you know, again, just sort of letting things play out and uh, and seeing what, where it goes. But uh, not as happy as I was this time last year, but we'll we'll see what happens. Your comment about injuries makes me think about whether there's going to be strategic shifts in how we plan our drafts and auctions next year. I guess it depends on whether we think this is kind of an outlier weird year for these kind of injuries. It seems to be affecting everybody, pitchers and hitters in all the different teams. Everybody's losing guys. And do you think that it's going to be prudent in future seasons for us to say we're going to have to put more of an emphasis on guys who don't get hurt or at least have a track record of not getting hurt and taking way less injury risk or trying to figure out ways to modify our draft strategies to allow for what seems to be a steadily increasing injury risk? Or at some point you just say, they're all going to get hurt to hell with it. I'll just take who I want. Yeah, I'll take a, you know, what I'll do is next year I will take a pitcher with a great track record that's still pretty young, maybe someone like Madison Bumgarner. And then when I take a closer, I'll take someone who's been incredibly reliable over the past few years. I'll take maybe Zach Britton. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and so the point being, you know, tongue in cheek wise, I think it's the latter thing you said. At this point, you, I, the guys that never get hurt are getting hurt. I mean, Mike Trout missing five games a few weeks ago was the equivalent of, of him getting, you know, a 15-day DL for somebody else. I mean, Trout never misses a game. You know, he was out for like whatever whatever it was, five games. I don't want to use Miggy because he's a, a little bit older, so I, I don't think you can, you know, it's almost as if he, he's not getting injured until he does sort of thing. But, you know, he's been incredible. You know, the first disabled list, you know, stint in his career happened, you know, within the past couple of weeks. So I don't know that you can actually, you know, avoid you know what i'll do is i'll, ne- I'll never draft an injury prone player I'm, I'm not taking ryan zimmerman so i mean i i think you just have to play and and not not do anything knee jerk and this year people are blaming it on the 10-day dl i've been kind of 
you know, I've been sort of posted on Twitter and anybody that, that says it, okay, other than the Dodgers, obviously using this as a 26th man, show me the players that wouldn't have been put in the 10-man DL, 10-day DL, that, that, that or have been put in the 10-day, that wouldn't be put in the 15-day DL. There's a small percentage, but this is just a weird year with injuries. It's not the 10-day DL. It's just something weird's going on this year with injuries. Uh, just at the start of the show, I was talking with Harold Nichols in our National League News Roundup about Hunter Pence, and Hunter Pence for a long time is a perfect example of what you're saying. Yep. Never missed a game or missed very few games. He was getting towards the kind of Iron Man status with a game here and a game there. Then all of a sudden in 2014, he starts getting hurt, and then he's one of those guys who's always getting hurt. And And now we know that about Hunter Pence, but going into that 2014 season, everybody would have said, one of, one of the reasons I'm going to sign Hunter Pence is that he never gets hurt until he does. Yeah, I don't want to use Freeman as an example. I mean, it was a fluke injury the other night, but he has missed time before. But, there, you know, Donaldson's missed time before. But there are, and I don't, obviously Pollock's missed time. But there are, you know, I don't, I don't think you could, you know, Robinson Cano, maybe he's the one I'm thinking of. And he's, again, someone will counter by saying, well, I, I avoided him because he's, you know, getting a little bit older. Well, you know, we haven't avoided him for the past 12 years when he's played 100, you know, 158 games. So I don't know. I, I guess you you may want to try to be a little more uh, less risk averse at the, at the beginning. On the other hand, some people prefer to embrace it. And this is, you know, with all this variance, why not start your team with Bryce Harper and Giancarlo Stanton and hope that they both stay healthy and they both hit? Because when everybody else going goofy, you'll you'll just clean up. So. You know, there, I, that's part of what makes this so interesting and frustrating is there are different approaches. But I'm not going to I don't think I'm going to change anything uh, in, in a huge way next year. Just, you know, I don't I'm not going to change my where I'm going to take closers. I'm not going to change how I rank starting pitching. I'm going to have to adjust to how the market does all these sort of things. But in my own head, I don't think I'm going to come up with any sort of newfangled. This is the way to beat the injury sort of sort of approach. Well, you mentioned your own teams are uh, in the middle of the pack. Uh, my team in American League Tout has fallen into the cellar, and I thought coming out of draft I had a really good team, and I've just been decimated by injuries like so many people have. We're coming up to the Memorial Day threshold for team assessment, according to some experts. You Where you stand on Memorial Day around the end of May is a pretty good precursor of your likelihood of finishing in the money. I wonder how much credence you put in that particular in that particular idea and whether or not it's a matter of probabilities versus certainties. How do you feel about the Memorial Day assessment? Yeah, I think it's probabilities versus certain versus, I don't think there's anything certain, especially this season where, like I mentioned, and, and it is to say that every team in your league is eventually going to get hit with an injury. But one of the things, you know, not so much to keep me going, but I actually I think it's true, is I'm actually, I, I, maybe I had my injuries early, and maybe the replacement players I was able to get are better than the replacement players that other people are going to be able to get later when, when they lose their Josh Donaldson, when they lose their Madison Bumgarner, uh, and, and, you know, players of that, you know, the, the, the key players that their replacements, you know, I was able to, it's, listen, he's not a lifesaver, but i be able to pick up Christian Arroyo in a couple places, you know, he's probably going to be playing regularly for the, through the season. It's, it's, again, he's not hitting 300 with 25 homers, but he's better than a replacement-level player is going to be, especially because I think he'll get better uh, later in the season. So I think there is – I don't know the exact numbers, and I've actually – I've kind of looked at it in the NFBC where teams have been, and I, I know anecdotally where some of the champions have been, and you'd be surprised how low on the standings they, they tell me they've been in the middle of the season. So uh, it, it, 
your chances, of course, are, are, are reduced. And you hear it all the time. Even I think it's the Cardinals we've been hearing it about. You know, 10% of teams that started off 3-13 and 13 in the wild card era make the playoffs, that sort of thing. The same sort of thing here. There's a certain percentage of teams out of the money that find a way to jump into the money. Uh, and this year, I think it there could be some outlying just because of all the injuries. So, this I'm not going to say that your chances are just as good on May 31st. Uh, you know, if you're if ninth, if you're in third, you got more work to do. But I, I don't think it's time to start planning fantasy football either. Also, I think you have to take a pretty close look at the categories because when you when you assess the categories one by one and see, well, geez, you know, I'm only three home runs out of winning this category, and right now I'm in eighth place in it. That kind of should give you reason for confidence versus if you're, you know, if you're, if you're in the bottom third and you're 50 home runs behind already, then you've got more trouble than than the in the other instance. So, the other thing I thought about this this um, May 30th deadline is, aren't you worse off in June than you would be in May if you're down at the bottom of the standings because you just have less and less time to make up the gaps? Oh, absolutely, and I think you know, and and I th- the same the same idea. You, you're going to hear. You know, in midseason that there's X amount of teams below 500 that make the wild card, things like that. So it's it's true in football, especially you hear these things all the time. Uh, So, yeah, you you do. You know, at some point you do want to make a move. Um, Guys get healthier or start playing better, managing categories or the whatnot. So, yeah, I mean, you don't want to be languishing eighth, ninth and tenth too much longer than May, obviously. But, um, yeah, the deeper we get in. The uh, obviously the more the, the harder it is to make up the ground. Now the the, the, other, the sort of like the uh, what I'm the other thing too is is you're and this is one reason why I don't like category targets drafting towards targets at the beginning of the year. The you know pitching run scoring is a different than we expected with all these pitchers that are getting hurt. We're using replacement level pitchers, so the ERA and the WHIPs are, are different than we, we we targeted before. I haven't checked steals yet to see how we're pacing, and I mean I know we're pacing well in home runs. But it's it's what I'm looking at is some of my leagues with the, with the ratios, and they're you know ter- a lot of my teams that are doing poor are doing poor because of the ratios, and I I feel some of these guys will be coming back some of my pitchers, but I feel this year more than any you have a better chance of making up ground in ratios just because you're not the, who you're fighting aren't doing as well as they've done in the past because they're using replacement level pitchers too. So whereas before you looked at the ratio and said, geez, I can only gain another two or three points, I think this year you can gain five or six because everybody's back. Now, you, know, you can't look at that 4.87 in a vacuum. You have to look at it compared to, you know, what's up, what's above it. You know, last year, 4.87, forget it, you were done. This year, if you get that to 4.4, 4.5, four, four, you're probably going to gain four or five points. Yeah, the, 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 the whole category imperative is so important in understanding not only where you are but where the league is and where the league is likely headed these are all really important considerations i remember looking just the other day at my own standings and i think if i pick up like five or six wins over the over the next couple of weeks or between now and the end i'll pick up seven or eight points i could pick up three four points with two or three runs scored as the league as the as the game gets tighter, the ability to move gets greater. And and uh, I'm curious also, you project all the players. Do you project your leagues as well to give yourself an understanding of where you think you're going to finish out? No, uh, and actually, no, I no, I don't. And there was a there was a, a discussion on on the HQ forums about this sort of thing. They wish there was a tool that would do this. And I I was the one that said, 
I don't want that tool just because I don't know what's going to, they're going to make trades, they're going to do this, they're going to do that. I just want to keep piling up counting stats and, and keep improving my ratios as much as I can and then come, I don't know, August or whatever, then we start managing the categories. I mean, obviously, if you know you have a deficiency, if you, uh, if you, if you lost a stolen base guy, if you lost a closer, you know you need to address that. But I don't want to micromanage, <clears throat> excuse me, the points. You don't know the distributions uh, just a little bit yet. So I, I don't project that sort of thing, especially in home keeper leagues. You just don't know what's going to happen. So I, I, don't go, I don't do that sort of thing. Now, I mentioned the standings. One thing I do, the study I have done, haven't done it in a little bit, but it, I probably maybe I can do that again, but it's the same result every year. I take a look at the standings, and I, I, I don't care about the actual uh, teams and whatnot. What I, I look at the distribution between all the different categories and the ratios. In the, in the, the May 30 and May 31st uh, deadline we're talking about, it's usually the first week in June, is when the top-to-bottom spread is the same as it's going to be at the end of the year. Teams will flip-flop, obviously, within the, within that spread. But, you know, and, until that point, the, the winning ratio is, is lower than it's going to be in September. And the worst play, the last place ratio is higher than it's going to be in September. But somewhere around the first week in June, that top to bottom, and the same with the counting categories. So now you have, a, now, now at least I think you have a little bit better of a, of a baseline from which to work to look at those categories. Even even now, if you look at your the league leading ERA, you probably said there's no way that guy you know, that team's going to stay with a two seven or whatever it might be. They are going to get worse. But in about three weeks, it could that it may not be that team, but a different team very well could be holding the the two nine five or whatever it is that that it, that it, that it falls to. So uh, as far as that goes, I do I think that the once you're like I said, a little more than two months into the season, you can start trusting the standing distribution a bit more. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. And Todd, uh, you had a really interesting column just the other day, I think, uh, at Rotowire. They're called the Z Files, and they make excellent reading. You were talking about disappointing hitters, and you were looking at it in a very uh, particular way that um, that I think you, we need to explain before we start, so that people understand what we're talking about. What were the methods or criteria for choosing out these disappointing hitters, and for the adjustments that you're making? These aren't just you know a list of disappointing hitters, you know, you know players that have not lived up to expectations. Part of what I do for my for my own work and and and, and the contracted work. All right, I project rest of this project rest of the season. I know HQ has got rest of season projections. We've got similar methodologies, weighted average, using skills, and the whatnot. So part of what I do is, uh, you know, every week I have my rest of season projections. It involves playing time. Uh, it adjusts you know, certain teams, team context. If a team looks like they're going to score more or fewer runs than I originally anticipated, that affects runs and RBIs. So basically, it just it's an updated rest of season projection. And so instead of just listing the disappointments, I listed the players that, uh, and I tried to take, I, I didn't try, I took injury out. I, I didn't want to, I, I took injury out. So I listed the players whose rest of season projections have changed most relative to my original expectation. And some of it is just, you know, like I mentioned, some of it might be team oriented, but other, there's certain skills that have, uh, declined, or perhaps in my in, sometimes I get a little. I don't say aggressive, but if I see a if I if I believe in a skill increase of a player, I'll project it, and maybe that didn't come to fruition. So uh, these players, their their skills have dropped, their playing time probably has dropped in their team context, 
could, has dropped. So, so these are the players that I sort of uh, expect to continue to play. Well, at least they're not injured now. Some of these guys were in the minors, which kind of the beginning of the article is kind of you know get you know tell me something I need to know sort of Zola because I don't care what Paulo Orlando is going to be doing. Uh, but so these are players that I expect to continue to play. But I don't think you know everybody thinks water reaches its level. I don't think the water will reach its level for this group of players. And to my, you know, that that if that means get rid of them or don't acquire them, I guess that's the actionable actionable point. As some of these players you say are worth taking a little bit of a gamble on if somebody's willing to sell low. Right. Other guys, not so much. Uh, let's start with a few uh, a few guys from uh, your list. Alex Gordon of Kansas City has been, uh, you, you only projected him for $3, a relatively low projection amongst the many. Uh, you say the rest of the season he'll be a negative value player and there's not a lot of hope here. Yeah, now the other context thing is uh, when you mentioned the dollar values or I mentioned the dollar values, these are for 15T mixed. It's just kind of a you know we, we can't we can't do it for everybody so if you know you know if you're in a shallower league you know it's going to be you know a little more if you're in a, I'm sorry a deeper league yeah if it's in a shallower league it's less money if you're in a, you know AL only it's it's more money so that's kind of our midpoint is the 15 team mixed but yeah a lot of people you know and I think the the three I don't want to say the aggressive was the three dollars but coming off of last season people were just uh, there were some people that were that 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 picked Gordon because they expected him to bounce back. The, the strikeout rates last year was was ridiculous. The weird thing is his strikeout rates pretty much normalized to where it was previous years, but his his contact is just ridiculously soft, and that I mean it doesn't mean it's going to stay that way, and it's a narrative that he's you know given up you know he's striking out fewer times just to make contact regardless of what that contact is, but it's just. There's nothing, and I'd love to be the one to tell you right now that go get Gordon, you know. But I just, I just don't. That, that's that's soft contact at his stage of the career, just scares me. So I, I just, I don't. And he's, and he's hitting grounders. He's not. It's not. It's not even soft fly ball, you know. It's not that he could eventually. He's not one of those guys trying to loft the ball to get more power. So it's just not. A, you know, I, I don't see it in Gordon. I don't think I'm, you know, changing anybody's seasons by saying that. But I don't. He's not the guy I'm looking for if I'm down. I need to find some a shot in the arm to help my team. Yeah, for me, the big worry also is the hard contact by uh, Fangraphs measurements. He's at about thirty-seven percent last year, which is okay. Twenty-seven percent this year. That's that's really uh, that's really a fall off. And uh, even worse, I think, is the big increase in medium hit contact, which is I I will argue medium hits even worse than soft because a soft a soft fly ball will dunk in every once in a while, but a medium hit fly ball is just a can of corn, and a medium hit ground ball is an easy an easy play doesn't even challenge the the fielders. I'm an Alex Gordon owner, and I'm pretty disappointed, and I think I'm stuck with him in a single league format because who would take him at this point i mean I'll, i offer him anytime somebody mentions a trade but i'm getting no interest uh the new york mets have curtis granderson uh, you picked him for a, a decent year seven dollars or so he's going to be projected now in the negative area again because of michael conforto curtis granderson uh, again what's the story as far as you're concerned yeah, now part of the seven dollars, you know, we have to sort of make this make decisions early in the season where I, I over project over projected the Mets. I just assumed they would make a deal, and I you know I probably over projected Bruce and Conforto and Granderson. Now Conforto was my odd man out, is if I I didn't give him as many as at bats, plate appearances, but um, so that that was kind of a difficult decision early on. Granderson just you know he. 
he's you know he's always done okay hitting at the top of the order he's getting up there in years the uh it's the the hard con again it's similar similar to uh gordon his hard contact is just falling off the table as has his line drive rate now these are just this is telling us what's been done it doesn't necessarily mean what's going to happen going forward uh so but the so the other issue with granderson as much as as much as the drop in skills or potential drop in skills is the you know the the, the Ill performance thus far is going to cost him playing time. Right now he's playing, but once Cespedes comes back, you know, and Cespedes, who, who they're not going to sit Confardo, they're not going to sit Bruce. It's going to be Granderson that's going to be sitting. So and if and lately when he, when he has been playing, he's been hitting sixth and seventh, which cost him not only at bats but it cost him rate of production as well. So um, if you know if you're looking for that boost in power, if you know. Plus, the, the other guy that just came back was Duda. Now, a lot of these guys can get hurt again. But to me, it's it's a combination of the drop in skills, the lack of confidence to bounce back fully, along with the, the playing time drop is, you know, if uh, hopefully you got Granderson at a discount and you were probably happy about it at the time, uh, you probably shouldn't have been so happy. A guy you think might be a good buy low candidate is Rajai Davis of Oakland. He's uh, hitting barely over 200. He's only got a handful of steals. We would have expected more by this time. And uh, you say that things should turn around for him just based on luck. Yeah, I looked at the uh, you know looked at the, the not just the contact and the walk metrics, but the, you know you mentioned line drive and hit distribution, fly ball, ground ball. Uh, line drive and hard hit soft hit etc and i mean obviously it's not an exact overlay but it, i look at it and i don't see it being ridiculously different than years past now he's playing with a different team he's playing with oakland it's uh you know the park it, it reduces offense but i don't think that that's the kind of park that's going to hurt davis it you know such a big park I, you know the ground balls are going to you know go through if it's Wrigley or if it's Fenway or if it's the, you know, or if it's on, it's not, it's not called Ricky Henderson field, but they, the surface is called Ricky Henderson field, which is kind of weird. It's still the Coliseum, but they play on Ricky Henderson field. So, you know, and, and you know, Dave, if Davis isn't getting on, he's not stealing. Um, you know, this is a guy that I, I, as I joked about, we came really, really close to having a whole generation of kids named Rajay in this country uh, last October. But uh, you know, the, as the fate have it, they're now named Theo. So, um, but anyway, um, I don't know I, if I need steals, Davis is on my radar still. I think that, you know, and, and don't think about Oakland. Well, you know, Oakland doesn't run. O Oakland does. Oakland plays to the players at, at strength and they did. They would not have invested in Rajay Davis if they didn't want him to run when he gets on. Now, I happened to see him last night, try to steal a base and got done down, gunned down by Christian Vasquez. So whether he's lost a step or not, don't, you know, can't, can't judge that really. But I do think if you need some steals, I would not discount Davis at this point of the season. CJ Cron of the Angels coming in, uh, looked like he might be a decent producer. He hasn't been. And uh, you're saying that uh, probably not going to be. Yeah, it, that, that's a tough one because there's a lot of narrative involved there with uh, Sosha like him, dislike him, whatever, you know, that sort of thing. Um, coming into the season, he had a little bit of opening because Albert Pujols weren't sure if he'd be recovered from the from the foot surgery yet, if they were going to sit him. But right now, he's in a playing time crunch with Jeffrey Marte and Pujols. So, you know, I, 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 dealt, I think Cron still, if, if it wasn't for the playing time crunch, I'd be saying get him because I think he will bounce back. The power will come. But, 
I just I, with with Marte involved and, and it looks like Albert's the average isn't there, but he's still knocking in runs left and right, which is what Albert does. I I think there'll be a, a playing time crunch for Crone. So I think it, it depends on the league. If you've got ability to shuffle guys in and out of your lineup, Crone's a guy I think you want when he's playing. You know, obviously I mentioned AL only. Who's going to be better than Alex Gordon? There's not going to be a, you know a lot of corners better than Crone available. So you're sort of stuck with him. But in mixed leagues. I don't know if I drop him because if something if Albert gets hurt or if Marte slows down, then I think we're we're back in business. But you know, from from here to the rest of the season, I had a nick in playing time, which drops him in the you know in in this sort of you know according to the system. And he's a guy that I may have I may have uh, leap of faith sort of thing. So my initial eleven dollar projection may have been generous. Maybe I gave more playing time and uh, bought into the power output. So other, you know, maybe a more realistic uh, initial expectation would have been seven or eight dollars as opposed to eleven. Um, so I think some of that's feeding into it. But he still, the difference is still big enough. He would have made the list. I was interested in your comment on Jose Bautista of the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Part of it, he's had a nice week. Uh, he's made a, a little bit of a comeback this week, uh, bashing the ball to the tune of a, around a 1,200 OPS for the last week. But uh, he's still kind of languishing. And one of the comments you made about Jose Bautista is the team context is really important in a lot of the counting stats, RBIs and runs, obviously. And um, because you overestimated Toronto's uh, production you overestimated Bautista's production as a part of the overall production. How important is that team effect, and how do you adjust for it? Now, yeah, now the the problem with Toronto, I mean, now you're asking sort of general. Well, so I'll answer general first, and then I'll hit Toronto specifically. But um, yeah, you know, runs an RB. If a team, is, you know, if it, you know, to use a silly number, you know, if a team scores a hundred fewer runs than you thought they would, and if there's nine players in the lineup. That you know, uh, granted it's not equal, but you know everybody's going to have 10 fewer runs and 10 fewer RBIs than you originally thought, which might not seem like a lot, but when you plug it into the little black box that spits out the dollar value, it's pretty big. Or if you go to your standings, a more practical application, go to your standings and see, you know, at some point and it doesn't, not at all the points, but at some points in your standings, 10 RBIs or 10 runs is going to be two or three points. So it it is pretty important. Now you know I can say too that. It isn't equal. The guys in the middle of the order are going to be gaining or losing more than those 10. And it, they may score 100, you know, 100 runs is a lot. So maybe it wasn't 100 runs. Maybe it was 50. But the point being, you know, even five or six or seven RBIs uh, it, it makes a difference. Now, the problem dealing with Toronto is they've been out, been without Donaldson. So I don't know what their actual baseline is. I'm just taking a look at the, the rest of the lineup, who they have, what they're using, and even with Donaldson back, I think they're going to score fewer runs than I originally had thought. I guess I had, I guess I mean, probably because I didn't think they were going to fall off that much. Now I could, it could turn out that I'm all wet because Pilar's hitting uh, a, a little bit now. Travis is in a little bit now. So maybe the team, maybe when Donaldson comes back, the old shot in the arm and the team itself scores more. But at least, at least to this point, uh, just my, I sort of have an algorithm that captures this. The uh, my projected run scoring for Toronto has gone down a bit, so it's sort of been captured by Bautista in, in Bautista's numbers. Again, when Donaldson's come back and they start scoring more runs, it may reverse. But I still am a little leery about Toronto in general, so um, it does matter. And the other thing too, if they don't score as many runs, 
They don't these, the rod, you know, volume. They don't get up to the plate as much. The order doesn't turn over as much, and you could lose 10, 10 12 plate appearances. Which again, doesn't seem like much, but if you're hitting one homer every 10 or 12 plate appearances and getting whatever it is, two or three, four RBIs, take that away. And again, when you put this into a little black box, it could be a few dollars worth of, you know, expected production. For all that, though, Todd, you say Bautista is still on your bylaw radar, and in fact, you dealt for him in one of your leagues. Yeah, um, man, he's still going to hit homers, and I, you, I think you had to bake in a low batting average, and I also think you had to bake in he wasn't going to stay healthy the whole year. So, if you need power, I, he's a guy to get. Now, this is we, we the uh, I, I traded him for Madison Bumgarner in mixed labor, so it was just a matter of. You know, okay, Bumgarner comes back after the All-Star break for a shot in the arm, but if my team is in, you know, a 12th or 13th place out of 15, who cares? I have to, I have to do something to, uh, you know, this is a league that I, I lost Donaldson and and, and 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 I think four or five or six of my first eight draft picks have been hurt. So I, I have to, you know, I'm not not so much complaining as it is pointing out. I just need to start grinding. I need to start taking chances. So to me, Bautista's power. It's still bankable, maybe not 40 home runs, but I think something in the 20s is bankable, and it's better than the replacement player that I got to replace some of my hurt guys. So I felt that uh, trading, as I said, bat flip for bike flip was, uh, was a warranted deal. You say Kyle Seeger of the Mariners is the one player you would bet is not going to be on the list in a month's time. Uh, why is Kyle Seeger on the list in the first place, and why do you think he's not going to be on it given another four weeks? Yeah, so so part of this whole thing is has to do with contact rate and sort of skills moving. I call it the 50-50 line, the over-under line, where certain players, you know, I don't want to, you know, misspeak. We've been called out by the uh, by Russell Carlton, not necessarily me personally, but sort of the industry in general for using the words reliable and stable as far as skills changes go. Um, so I don't want to go down that road again. But contact rate the, is is a skill that there's a better chance of it being a new level earlier in the season than some of these other skills. and But it's still a 50-50 chance that the that the player doesn't fall, you know, it doesn't keep moving in that same direction. So um, I just, the every looking at all his metrics, like I think I talked, talked about with, uh, with, uh, with Davis, there's nothing hugely different other than home run per fly ball. And, Sure, there's there's some there's some skill involved with it, but I also expect home run per fly ball to move, and um, I think that over the course of the season it will move towards his expected number. Now the other thing with Seager is, like Crone, I may have been optimistic originally, and and it's hard, you know, the old thing when you see a trend of two four six, is the next number eight, or is the next number four. Or do you use a weighted average and is at 4.2? So certain guys that we see a, a trend, you know, I, I may I may do my weighted average to it's it's not going to be eight in that situation, but I probably have the weighted average favoring more the more recent seasons on some players. So I may have been a little more optimistic on Seager than some, which accounts for some of the drop in uh, you know initial to rest of season, and the the algorithm sort of doesn't have this bias. And it's just going to go on. Sure, it has the bias of my original expectation, but it's using what's happened now. 
So I think that uh, if, if all the players, you know, Seager, by the time by the time some people listen to this, if they don't listen to it at the end of the weekend, he could go out and hit three homers over the, you know, in the next two days, and his home run for fly ball is fairly close to where it should be, and he's pacing where he should be. So um, I'm not, you know, of all the players, I'm not all that worried about Kyle Seager. And finally, Todd, Edwin Encarnacion got off to a very slow start, especially in batting average leagues, but he was striking out a ton, although he was drawing walks. He seems to have cut down on the, on the strikeouts, but you're still not very confident about the batting average, and uh, he's not going to hit 40 home runs probably either. What's your overall look at Edwin Encarnacion for the balance of the year? Yeah, our uh, our colleagues, you know, Glenn Wolf and uh, Glenn Wolf. Uh, Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf. Yeah, maybe we should just call him Glenn Wolf and save the time. Uh, Colton and the Wolfman have a have a have a system or or some more philosophy where they don't they don't buy a player the first year in a new con a uh, big contract with a new team. They think you may press, try to work up to the contract, that sort of thing. And whether that's narrative or came to fruition or just dumb luck that Encarnacion started striking out a ton. Um, it, 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 it looks as though it would have been wise to, to follow their philosophy this season. Um, again, the, the strikeouts have waned. They're, uh, but I, the thing, you know, as far as the, um, the power isn't where it was. Now, Cleveland Progressive Field is still a decent park for power, not quite as good as the Rogers Center. And I think something that we, you know, I like, I like to say home runs are hits too. So if you're dropping five home runs, you know, you say, you say, well, okay, what's the difference between 35 and 40 home runs? Well, it's not, you know, in a vacuum, it's it's not it's not terrible. I mean, you're not going to get fired as a prognosticator because of that. But there's associated runs in RBI production, and that's five hits. That it were, you know, I don't know that they necessarily became doubles. That's five hits, so your batting average is going to drop 10 or 12 points. So not that we we're expecting Encarnacion to hit anything more than mid-260s, I just, based upon, you know, the strikeouts now, is not to say that he the, doesn't begin to press or whatever the reason he was striking out before doesn't come back again. Uh, I, you know, I don't think his contact rate is going to be quite as low going forward as we may have thought coming into the season. So com- that combined with, I think there will be a drop in power in Cleveland from Toronto. Uh, you know, he's still the highest projected guy rest of the season on the list. He's still a $20 player. I'm just not sure that he's one of those he wasn't 30 for me going in but he was close enough that he could have been 30 you know or or very on the border what's the difference between 28 and 30 so still a good player but i don't think he's going to be the uh the player you know the, the late second round player that i thought maybe he would be coming into the season on the other hand, Todd, uh, his hard hit ball percentage is up, his line drive percentage is up, and his uh, BABIP or hit rate is down a little bit this year, around uh, 260 or so. We, we should expect that to be a little bit yeah. higher, uh, not not a lot higher considering all the fly balls he usually hits. But is there not some batting average upside here into the 260 range that he's always had? It looks to me when I look at his his numbers that the skills still seem to be outperforming the results. Yeah, no, absolutely, and you know, to me, you know, listen, 250 isn't terrible. I mean, if he, you know, if he does hit, the, you know, compare, we are only expecting 265 or whatever. So sure, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to. I mean, I wanted to sort of, you know, Seager was the guy. I, you know, you kind of dilute statements when you start to say in my second one that that won't make the list, and the third one. So if you had to ask me a, a, the second, the next player that I felt, you know, that when we talk in, in, in you know, maybe in, in July, saying look like you were wrong on. 
and you know the second play would be in Encarnacion just for what you mentioned the hard hit rate and the and 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 the the underlying metrics the exit velocity that sort of stuff going on there um i the the number one metric that the system catches is is strikeouts so right now even though he's been doing better lately it's still pulling in what he did early in the season if he continues on striking out his his regular rate his overall rate drops and that gets captured less and less by the by the system and the in the uh outlook improves and improves so i mean I, people out there saying you know why can't you know do, you know override your model well you can but if you're going to override the model on every single player then it's no longer a model so uh that's why i was saying that i mean in the second that i say well, you know what encarnacion's striking out fewer times i'm going to change it then he goes on a spree when he strikes out eight times over the weekend. So what I have found is, is even though these players that do correct it, once they had that streak at one point, it's, it can happen again. So it is usually just the day after someone calls me out on it, and then, and then it turns out that you know that the the system worked, but you can't exactly. And we talked about this, you know, for what we do, we can't, you know, na 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 na, you know, back to them on Twitter, or whatever. You just have to trust that enough people see that the system worked, and that's why they trust you. So yeah, I'm not going to be surprised. And I would target, you know, I think I'd obviously it's not. Listen, I'm, you know, I'm not breaking any waves here by saying I'd rather have an Encarnacion than Bautista. I'd rather have him earlier in the season too. But relative, you know, on a relative basis, relative to what I expect, I'm more confident that Encarnacion will bounce back than Bautista. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and DSPN and Rotowire. And uh, Todd, you're also the Rotowire weekly pitching analyst. Uh, before we talk about particular pitchers, uh, give a quick overview of what that weekly pitching presentation offers. It's basically ranking pitchers, taking into consideration the number of starts, the opponent, the venue, and the opposition. And one of my frustrations with lists of this nature, not just pitching, but in general, I, I kind of believe people start with a, an overall, okay, Kershaw, then Scherzer, then, then Sale, then, you know, in kind of an overall view, and then they kind of just move guys up and down on, I, I don't, not on a whim, but n- not doing it mathematically, you know, more, not, not quantifying it. So I wanted to come up with a system where I actually quantified, you know, literally do a projection of what that pitcher's going to do. Now, of course, <laughs> I'm, you know, giggling because I think three or four, you know, whatever, whatever, more than that, you know, 10 pitchers that are probable starters when the list gets posted, you know, are not probable starters by Monday, but that you, you sort of, you got to go with what you know at the time. It's not an exercise in futility, but you have to be cognizant of changes that are going to be made. But anyway, the point being, I project them and then figure out how that actually hurts or helps your fantasy team and rank them in that way. And it's led to some, it's led to some, you know, you know, things that may not pass the eyeball test for some people, primarily because they're used to these sort of lists, and, and, and in their head, they're still ranking the pitchers. They're not ranking the matchups. So that's, you know, if you're looking for a buzzword, I rank the matchups. I don't rank the pitchers. That said, you do offer some short notes about uh, some of these pitchers, and you also had at Masters Ball a little uh, discussion of some of the pitchers who also appear on this list. I'd like to ask you about a few of them, starting with Marco Estrada, you say, time to admit it, Marco Estrada is really good. Why was there doubt about this fact based on the last few years, and why do you think that uh, this is something that we should all accept at this point? The thing with Estrada is the BABIP. They carry that, that, that ridiculously low BABIP, and 
and I don't think I haven't. I'm not exactly sure. I don't think it's quite as low as it's been, but I think it's time that we 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 we're not. We we just can't. Actually, this year it is back up to uh, where it has fully. I don't want to say fully regressed, but it's it's back up to uh, a normal amount. And with the Babbitt being uh, as expected, he's raised his his skills, improved. He's fanning more people, and he's improved his control. Uh, last year there was kind of a a natural spike in control. It's 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 back down to where you might expect out of a out of an Estrada. So I think it's it, it's more of a lot of people sort of to fill to 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 make their number crunching philosophy worked. They wanted him to stink because of that. They wanted oh look the BABIP's going to go up and so was his ERA. Well, it didn't. The BABIP's back up and then his ERA didn't go back up. He improved skills elsewhere. So I think it's finally fine to say that he's a pretty good pitcher. He's he's not just a, a lucky pitcher. He's a skilled pitcher. Yeah, one of the one of the guys that Gene McCaffrey and I both really like is Marco Estrada because of that ability to get those infield flies. Uh, yep. Dallas Koichel, uh, Houston. You said the peripherals here are solid, but a low batting average on balls in play is supporting a too low ERA, and there may be a correction coming. Are you are you confident about that? You could be an ace for different reasons. In my mind, you know, maybe you know too much NFPC. I don't know. You need strikeouts. So. My ace in NFPC needs some strikeouts. Now, on the other hand, there's guys like Darvish who strike out a ton but have poor ratios that I don't touch in the NFPC because, you know, you, you, I want it all. I want good ratios and I want strikeouts. So it's weird. I don't want either Keuchel or Darvish. I want something in between. So so in, in the back of my mind, it's I, I will never have Keuchel ranked as high as some just because I don't I don't see the strikeout upside that other people see. So and it's it's more of just a warning. Whatever he's kind of one of those polar players. Either you like him or you don't. So uh, those that do like him, you should. But just beware. I I think that ERA will creep up. You say Luis Severino of the Yankees is a stud in the making, and then you followed that up by pointing out that his uh, strikeout rate this year so far is a little bit uh, over his projected strikeouts, which looks like it could be a good thing with some caveats. Well, I didn't say he was going to be a stud starting today. I just, I from what I've seen of him, and from what the numbers show, I think we've got something going on here. I think the Yankees have got a front end of the. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to put your, you know, Stephen Nickren out of business by saying I like Luis Severino, the uh, the starting pitching guru of of HQ. Um, it, it's a bit of an eye test, and and I'm not as scared of Yankee Stadium as some people because it's one of those quirky parks where sure it's a home run park but it's not a run park uh primarily because if the fly ball does not leave the yards it gets caught and outs are important so it, it, it's actually playing fairly neutral neutral for runs and i do see severino as a guy that can uh limit limit home runs uh he's not an extreme ground ball guy he's approaching that this year with a a two ground ball to fly ball ratio depending upon what service you're using to to do that measurement but i think he's going to min- minimize the home runs enough and the the uh i don't think he'll stay i don't think well again not breaking ground by saying he won't keep a double digit double digit strikeout rate but it certainly can be a batter in inning so you know if you read that comment and expected him to go out and throw a no hitter that week well maybe maybe i should have you know not have been such short and pithy about it the other hand, if you have him in a dynasty league, that was more who it was directed to. You know, pat yourself on the back. I think you got yourself a keeper in a in a in a, in a long-term dynasty league. 
Interesting comment you made about Severino in this other piece at Rotowire is, uh, I should say at Masters Ball, is that Severino has some interesting metrics in that some of them are really weirdly bad and some of them are really weirdly good. And I'm lo- focusing particularly on a 22% home run per fly ball mark, which is really bad. It's going to be harmful to a ERA, but on the other hand, a 232 batting average on balls in play is really good. And these both look lucky. Uh, or unlucky as the case might be. And I think if I'm reading you right, we should we should imagine that everything kind of settles out and that they are currently offsetting each other. And when they both settle out, the offset will not matter and that he'll end up right in the mid-threes where he is now. Yeah. Now, what made it even a little bit weirder, uh, getting a little deep here, but that's what we're here for, he's a ground ball pitcher. So when a BABIP is low, it, it's sort of you know extra low. Because the ground ball pitchers should have a sport a slightly higher BABIP than a fly ball pitcher. Because as I alluded to earlier, fly balls have a better chance of getting caught than ground balls do of getting picked and, and, and throw the guy out. I mean, there's still a better chance of a ground ball being an out than a, than a hit. But relative to the fly ball, uh, more ground ball hits than fly ball hits. So the fact that it's low, again, it, it's sort of a, a, a double whammy. And the other thing to you know, keep in mind is... The home run per fly ball is irrespective of if he's a ground ball or fly ball pitcher. It's just, you know, of the fly balls that were hit, a ton of them went for homers. And some of that uh, short sample I have, I don't recall if it, you know, preponderance of Yankee Stadium games or not. But, you know, you you expect a, a higher home run for fly ball in Yankee Stadium than elsewhere. But, yeah, the two of the, it's, it is kind of a push me, pull me thing. And that's what a good expected ERA uh, equation formula does. Um, in, in certain instances, you know, FIP and XFIP are close, and I know people argue that there are better than those, but those being the public, pub, publicly accessible expected ERAs and still being good enough, you know, sort of to use, uh, I don't want to get into the decimal point, but I think you can say, you know, it's lucky or unlucky, they're good enough for that. The um, Something when the home run and when the BABIP are so different, I like to use the XFIP because that normalizes home runs. And looking at his XFIP, it, it, it showed a very positive outlook for when, as you suggest, these, you know, luck evens itself out, so to speak, or finds its level. And what we have is a highly skilled strikeout pitcher with good control that induces ground balls. I don't care what Clark you play in, that plays. You said in your win expectation uh, column at Rotowire that Danny Duffy was a decent bet because he had decent win potential for the week, despite the fact he was facing the hammering Yankees. And uh, you were right; he pitched very well and got the win. Uh, Danny Duffy, however, has some uh, has some issues that you're concerned about. Again, that that goes back to the, the the idea of ranking the matchup, not the pitcher. And I don't I I have to assume that he was facing a lesser pitcher that evening. And I actually use a modified Pythagorean theorem where I use how many innings that I think Duffy's going to get with the Kansas City bullpen. And I think that probably helps him a bit because it's not the bullpen that it was, but it's still not bad. And I'm going to have to guess that the Yankees were probably not starting Severino against him. Not, you know, although their pitching is still, this is pretty good. Um, so, and, and, and I also think, that I think the Yankees, I think they're overachieving versus left-handed pitching. Not that they're not good hitters, but you know, there's a lot of left-handed hitters in that lineup, and I th- at least to this point of the season, I think they're overachieving a bit against lefties, which the system sort of neutralizes that a bit. But, um, you know, in general, uh, Duffy's one of those guys. I, I didn't buy into him quite as much as I may have Seager as far as, you know, the second half and the velocity change. I think I was a, tempered it a bit. But a lot of people were way into Duffy because when he became a starter the second half of last year, especially after the All-Star break, 
fastball up a couple miles an hour and uh, locating better. And, you know, the question would be at the t- last year, how many innings and how many innings could he go? But everybody felt confident that we we're looking at a 200 inning horse this year and the velocity's dropped and the location is just not as sharp. So it was a lot of leap of faith on whatever it was, two months worth of data. And, uh, you know, obviously that got captured by my projection, but, you know, he, he has not, at least to this point, shown that he was going to be able to carry it over fully. And, again, a lot of this stuff is really, really good at showing what has happened, but when, you know, spin rates and all these other things. We don't know if it what it pretends to just yet, but I think that we may have been a bit aggressive in our assumption that we have an ace in the making with Danny, with Danny Duffy. I think, you know what, I think he's better than he's showing now, but I know, again, it's not not silly. It's it's not, you know, breaking any ground to say he wasn't going to do what he did the last 10 weeks of last year for an entire season either. One of the stories of the year so far has been the uh, performance of Trevor Cahill in San Diego. You had projected him for around 21% strikeouts. He's actually a little bit over 30% strikeouts, obviously a good thing. And you say this is a, a good example of looking at increased strikeouts as part of a bigger picture. What does that mean? You want to try to find out where the strikeouts are coming from. You, you first want to take a look at your swinging strike rate to make sure that, you know, you hate to think of strikeouts luck, but it's just it's there that there's, uh, in, in, at least in, in cooperating with the amount of swings and misses you're getting, that the strikeout rate is there. Um, then if that's the case, you kind of want to go even a little further. And is he picked up velocity? Is he throwing different pitches? Has he changed his mix? That sort of thing. And there was enough evidence that I saw in his, as far as his pitch mix goes. And uh, I don't recall this. I, I, I do a bunch of these. If, he, if, I, if he's one of the guys throwing more two seamers and four seamers, I don't remember on the granular level exactly what it is that I found that he's doing. But there was something there that I felt was sustainable. And while, again, he's probably not going to strike out 10 a game or double digit per nine as he's been doing the uh you know i you know our friend our our, our buddy scott pianowski says okay regress regress to what my landing point of cahill is I, i'm guessing higher than other people people see trevor cahill and they go ew my landing point of cahill's eventual you know strikeout rate for the rest of the season i think is higher than some now i know he's hurt now but maybe that even prevents more of a buying opportunity but if you were if you're looking for a proverbial shot in the arm with all these injuries, Cahill is a guy that I'm looking for uh, to 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 help my staff uh, at least you know weather the storm until Syndergaard and Bumgarner and some of these other guys get back. Todd Zola, it's always fun talking to you about this stuff, and uh, of course we'll talk to you again in two or three weeks' time and throughout the season. Yeah, and uh, hopefully it won't seem hopefully it won't seem quite as long. I think the, it, it's rained a lot since we last talked, and I know it's been nice now, but uh, you know, living in the northeast uh, northeastern part of the uh, the country, United States here, weather seems to get people down, and uh, just the general mood has been kind of malaise around here lately. Although again, it's been picking up because uh, we're back to hot and humid. Okay, Todd, thanks. Talk to you again soon. All right. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and is a regular guest here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are coming up. The Minor League Minute, Playing Time, Frequent Flyers, Weekend Pitcher Matchups, and Master Notes, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. 
it's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up with great information across all the major fantasy formats, news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time tomorrow, Brian Slack's National League West coverage looks at the Colorado infield, the San Francisco bullpen turnover in the Dodgers rotation, and other National League West news. In facts and flukes, Marcel Ozuna's lack of consistency, Jose Peraza's lack of impact, Robbie Ray's lack of control, and Zach Wheeler's progress from Tommy John. Three lacks and a Zach. And in speculator Ray Murphy speculates on some nice buy-high candidates for May. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, the full-year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. And... If you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. Hey, and welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Glad you're aboard. It's time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups and master notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Colorado outfield prospect Rymel Tapia is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Colorado Rockies' Rymel Tapia is one of the more intriguing prospects in baseball. The 23-year-old outfielder is a quick-twitch athlete who has some of the best bat-to-ball skills in the minors, but his unconventional approach at the plate results in limited power and has always generated mixed reviews from scouts. Tapio was signed by the Rockies in 2010 out of the Dominican Republic for the bargain price of $175,000. Defensively, he can play all three outfield positions with good range and an above-average arm. On offense, Tapio puts the ball in play and uses his speed effectively. In 2016, the left-handed hitting Tapia slashed 328 with 25 doubles, 10 triples, 8 home runs, and 23 stolen bases with an 88% contact rate between double and triple A, and then held his own with the Rockies hitting 263 and 38 at-bats. Tapia now owns a career slash line of 321 with a 366 on-base percentage and a 453 slugging percentage over seven minor league seasons. Tapia can be overly aggressive at the plate, relying on his fast bat and contact ability to spoil pitches out of the zone, but major league pitchers will exploit that approach until he becomes more selective, and Tapia has never walked more than 35 times in any season. He also needs to improve his reads on the bases, and in 2016 was thrown out 17 times in 40 stolen base attempts. Rymel Tapia has gotten off to a very impressive start in 2017, and through his first 25 games with AAA, he's hitting a cool 400 with 15 doubles, 3 triples, and 8 stolen bases. The front-running Rockies don't have an obvious need right now, but their starting outfield of Ian Desmond, Charlie Blackman, and Carlos Gonzalez is not exactly the most durable, and an injury could create an opening later in the year. Those in long-term keeper leagues should definitely invest in Rymel Tapia, and he has the tools to develop into a 300 hitter with 20-plus stolen bases. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. 
Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Our recent prospect coverage includes call-up reports on Cleveland outfielder Bradley Zimmer, Cubs infielder outfielder Ian Happ, Tampa Bay right-hander Ryan Stanek, Colorado right-hander Jeff Hoffman, and more call-ups. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at St. Louis 6 starter Luke Weaver. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. A core premise of our Playing Time Tomorrow columns on BaseballHQ.com is the ability to look ahead and almost speculate on playing time changes before they happen. It's an exercise that can be especially useful in deep leagues and in leagues with a lot of reserve slots as you can stash skilled players who are just an injury or slump away from gaining regular playing time. Such is the case in Saturday's NL Central version of the column where Sam Grant looks at the Cardinals' rotation depth. All is currently well with the Cardinals st- starting five. Lance Lynn, Carlos Martinez, Mike Leak, Michael Waka, and Adam Wainwright are all healthy and pitching decently well. But there are a pair of F health grades in there and a D as well. And the Cardinals have a great sixth starter waiting in the wings, and that's Luke Weaver. Weaver's been dominant in AAA Memphis this year with an 18-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio with just one earned run in his last 20 innings since Weaver returned from an April back injury. Weaver did struggle on the surface in a brief MLB cameo with St. Louis last season with a 570 ERA and a 160 whip over eight August and September starts, but the underlying skills were strong. Weaver struck out 45 hitters in just 36 innings with a 376 expected ERA and a 129 base performance value or BPV. And if we needed one more box to check for Luke Weaver, he passed the test with our minor league scouting team, who ranked Weaver number three in the Cardinals system, entering 2017 behind Alex Reyes and Delvin Perez. Weaver's write-up included the possibility of a 2017 breakout, thanks in large part to a plus pair of out pitches and an ability to keep the ball down in the zone. So if you have room right now and need some rotation help, go ahead and see if Luke Weaver's available in your redraft league. Odds are good we'll see Weaver back up in St. Louis sooner rather than later, and Weaver's got the skills to make an impact as early as this summer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Pittsburgh infielder Max Moroff and Boston starter Hector Velasquez. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky, Who is currently leading the minors in home runs? Would you believe that it's a Pittsburgh utility player with a two fifty six career average of the minors who has never hit more than eight home runs a season? That's right, 24-year-old Pittsburgh Pirates infielder Max Moroff, who has never hit more than eight home runs in six minor league seasons, already has 12 round trips in 2017, and he's one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week. 
a switch hitter. Max Moroff even belt a home run from each side of the plate in a game against the Columbus Clippers on May 17th. Now that's just showing off. After making his Major League debut in 2016, Max Moroff received a brief four-game promotion in 2017 when Adam Frazier went on the 10-day DL earlier this month. Capable of playing every defensive position except catcher, Max Moroff's versatility could prove to be very valuable, especially in NL-only and keeper leagues. But, notwithstanding his recent power surge, the knock on Max Moroff has been his lack of any plus tools, although perhaps that's beginning to change, according to Baseball HQ's Nick Richards in the May 9th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com. That's why Max Moroff, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be long shots who may be worth a flyer if they're available in your league. Yet despite being sent back to AAA on May 12th, Max Moroff seems to be quickly generating staying power potential at the major league level. Another player quietly generating staying power potential, despite being roughed up as major league debut on May 18th, is Boston Red Sox right-hander Hector Velasquez. After making 120 starts over seven seasons of the Mexican League, the 28-year-old Velasquez was finally given a chance by the Boston Red Sox, who purchased his contract for $30,000 last February, said to give to Triple A Pawtucket. Hector Velasquez responded with a 155 ERA through five starts in 2017, earning him a spot start on May 18th against the Oakland A's at the Coliseum. Despite giving up back-to-back jacks in the first inning on his way to allowing six earned runs on nine hits, Hector Velasquez was still able to throw 101 pitches in that game. In other words, the Red Sox gave him a chance. On the bright side, her own Jeremy Deloney in the May 16th edition of Call-Ups on BaseballHQ.com describes Hector Velasquez as a consistent strike thrower who has the ability to cut and sink his fastball, giving him a viable ground ball option. So maybe he just needs another chance to excel, because as the great Ted Williams once said, baseball gives everyone a chance to excel, not just to be as good as someone else, but to be better than someone else. This is the nature of man and the name of the game. And here's your chance to excel by adding both Max Moroff and Hector Velasquez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets to sit. Between the ones, we call those the wild card range. They're toss-ups, and you'll have to consider them based on your own risk appetite. With a look at this weekend's matchups, including Max Scherzer, Hugh Darvish, and other weekend starters, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. We're one-fourth of the way through the season, and 2017 sample sizes are now large enough to use in our matchup ratings formula. This weekend, we have three pitchers in the recommended start range, and they all take the hill on Saturday. The lone AL go-to guy is Detroit's Justin Verlander, who has a matchup rating of 107 at home against Texas. The next highest matchup rating is Robbie Ray's 133 for Arizona's visit to San Diego. The best matchup rating is 163, and it belongs to our marquee matchup man, Max Scherzer. Scherzer's Washington Nationals are in Atlanta to face the Braves and Bartolo Colon, who has a matchup rating of minus 045. The Braves are fresh off their USA Today power ranking of number 30 out of the 30 major league teams. They should be no match for the number two ranked Nats. 
Atlanta has a home on-base percentage plus slugging percentage, or OPS, of 708. Washington has a road OPS of 830, best in the National League. Cologne has four consecutive PQS Disaster 1s in his past four starts and a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 13% dominant to 63% disaster. Scherzer's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 75% dominant to 0% disaster. He already has a PQS 4 at the Braves' new SunTrust Park and all four of his road starts have been PQS dominant. Scherzer's expected ERA of 313 and whip of 095 are close seconds to his career bests. His dominance rate of 11.5 strikeouts per nine and opponents on base percentage of 198 are career bests. You can hardly do better than this weekend's marquee matchup man, Max Scherzer. Our Sunday surprise has a wildcard matchup rating of minus 075. But in nine starts this season, Hugh Darvish of the Texas Rangers has three PQS dominant outings and only one PQS disaster. Darvish is in Detroit to face Matt Boyd of the Tigers. In his eight starts, Boyd has five PQS disasters and only one PQS dominant effort for a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 13% dominant to 63% disaster. Yet his wildcard matchup rating of minus 042 is better than Darvish's by 33 points. How could that be? Shouldn't Darvish dominate Detroit? Not so fast. This is the Sunday surprise for many reasons, beginning with the Rangers' road record of 6-12. Then add, or should we say subtract, Texas's slash line away from home. 207 batting average, 279 on base percentage, 381 slugging percentage. Only the Kansas City Royals are worse in the American League. At home, the Tigers' slash line is 263, 339, 439. That's fourth in the American League. And Boyd's PQS dominant start was at home, where he also has his two PQS decent starts and only one of his five PQS disasters. As for Darvish, only one of his three PQS dominant outings was on the road, and so was his lone PQS disaster. He's benefiting from a hit rate of 25% and a strand rate of 81%, so Darvish's expected ERA is nearly a run higher than his surface ERA. You may be surprised to see Darvish with a worse matchup rating than Boyd, and Boyd may have a rough ride with the Rangers, but you might be in for an unpleasant Sunday surprise if you expect Darvish to breeze by Detroit. Glancing at the rest of the slate, 19 starters have matchup ratings in the recommended sit range this weekend. That's 19 opportunities for you to stack your lineups. The shortest list is two on Saturday in the National League. Miami's Dan Straley looks vulnerable at Chavez Ravine against the Los Angeles Dodgers, and Philadelphia's Vincent Velasquez is projected to have trouble with the 28th-ranked run-scoring machine that is the Pittsburgh Pirates in pitcher-friendly PNC Park. In the American League on Saturday, again going against the grain in pitcher-friendly parks, Load your lineups against the Red Sox Drew Pomeranz in Oakland, the White Sox Mike Pelfrey in Seattle, the Astros Mike Fires at home against Cleveland, the Angels Alex Meyer in the interleague matchup without a DH against the Mets in New York City Field, the Twins Adam Wilk in Kansas City, and the Blue Jays Michael Bolsinger in Baltimore. On Sunday, there are 11 recommended sit matchup ratings. The American League has golden opportunities for hitters versus Houston's Joe Musgrove at home against Cleveland, the New York Yankees' CC Sabathia at Tampa Bay, and Seattle's Dylan Overton at home versus the Chicago White Sox. The interleague matchup again looks bad for the Angels starter. This time it's Jesse Chavez facing the New York Mets hitters in Citi Field. The last seven to choose from are in the NL on Sunday. Go against the D-backs Zach Godley at San Diego, the Cubs John Lackey at home against Milwaukee, both ends of the Rockies at Reds tilt, Kyle Freeland for Colorado and Bronson Arroyo for Cincinnati, 
the Marlins' David Phelps at the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Phil's Aaron Nola at Pittsburgh, and the Giants' Matt Cain in St. Louis. Those matchup ratings range from minus 122 at best to minus 315 at worst, averaging minus 197. 14 matchup ratings are worse than minus 150. Your hitters should have some good days this weekend, and we hope every day is good for you. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about changes in team stolen base go rates. A few fantasy stats depend heavily on manager decisions and team philosophy, and stolen bases are more like that than any other offensive stat, unless you're in a league that counts bunts or challenges or something. So I thought it might be interesting to look at all the major league teams as they reach the one-quarter mark of the season. I want to see which ones have changed their running game since last year. Most of them are doing what we might have expected, but some of them have stepped on the gas in 2017, while others are hitting the brakes. I looked at all the major league teams in 2016 and year-to-date 2017 through about 40 games played per team. I calculated each team's stolen base attempt percentage, that is, the percentage of stolen base opportunities when a runner actually tried to steal a base. To save the hassle of caps lock, because I always have trouble remembering to turn it off, I'm going to call stolen base attempt percentage the go rate, which also sounds snazzier. Changes in go rate aren't always the result of manager or team philosophy. Roster changes obviously matter. For example, Cleveland's go rate went way down this year, but that was mostly because Rajai Davis left and took his 33% go rate to Oakland in the offseason. So to keep things fair, I only counted players who were on a particular team's roster in both years, using these data. First, stolen base opportunities, using BaseballReference.com's definition, which is a runner at first or second with the next base open. Stolen bases and caught stealing, also from BaseballReference.com, stolen base attempts, just stolen bases plus caught stealing, and stolen base attempt percentage or go rate is stolen base attempts divided by opportunities. In 2017, the overall go rate for all teams was 5.7%. That was just one-tenth of a percentage point more than last season. 22 of the 30 major league teams had modest changes between plus 2 and minus 2 percentage points. But we want to look at the outliers. Let's start with the four teams who increased their go rate by more than 2 percentage points from year to year. One of the main reasons for a big change in go rate is a new manager. In Arizona, new field boss Tori Lavallo has fired the starter's pistol at the Phoenix Invitational track meet. Now, Lavallo was not a base running threat as a player. In eight MLB seasons, he had 17 stolen base attempts. But he has pulled Arizona from average all the way up into second place in go rate. Almost every Diamondback is up from last season, and three players, A.J. Pollock, who's now on the DL, Chris Owings, and Paul Goldschmidt, have go rates over 20%. When it comes to base running, Torrey is not conservative. 
Revisiting the Whitey Herzog era, St. Louis runs more than North Korean stockings. These running redbirds are led by Tommy Pham, who's running almost a quarter of his opportunities after just a 5% mark last year. Randall Grichuk, Aledmus Diaz, Stephen Piscotti, and Greg Garcia are all over 10%, also all well above their own marks last year. The St. Louis jump is the largest in relative terms, more than double their 2016 record. Texas was slightly over MLB average in 2016, but has jumped up among the leaders this year. Delino DeShields is running in 20% of his opportunities, and both Elvis Andrews and Rugnet Odor are five points higher than last year. It looks like Jeff Bannister is being more aggressive, although he may have hung a little bit of a red light around the neck of Carlos Gomez, whose go rate is down to 13% from 24%, although that might have something to do with that bulky leg that we talked about earlier. Now let's move on to the teams whose go rates have gone down more than two points. There are four of them, and let's start in Colorado. New manager Bud Black seems to be adopting his strategy from nine years managing in San Diego. He was generally reluctant to run with the Padres, 5-6% to 6 go rates during most of his tenure, except when his team lacked punch. In 2010, he had only one hitter above 770 OPS, that was Adrian Gonzalez, and his go rate went up to 8%. In 2011, there were two hitters over 770, Justin Upton and Miguel Montero, and his go rate went up even more to 10%. And then in 2012, he did have a 31 homer guy, Chase Headley, but only one other double-digit home run threat and a 9% go rate. And we should mention in that 2012 season, Black had five guys who could really scoot, led by Everth Cabrera who took off 30% of his opportunities and grabbed 44 stolen bases with a 92% success rate. I'd run too. Black looks like the kind of manager who adjusts his strategy to suit his personnel and his needs. In Colorado this year, he has plenty of pop, and so probably is less likely to risk outs on the base paths. Charlie Blackman and DJ LeMahieu might not even reach double digits in stolen bases this year, especially after they've both started the year two for four. In Washington, the decline of the team's go rate is reflected in severe drops among stolen base producers. Trey Turner is down by almost half from last year's 30% go rate, and Bryce Harper is all the way down to just 2% after ringing up a 16% last year. Like Black in Colorado, it could be that Dusty Baker thinks the Nationals can bash their way to plenty of runs without risking stolen bases. In San Diego, Manuel Margot is sporting a useful 15% go rate, but the rest of the team is lagging, including Will Myers, whose rate is off a couple of notches at 12%. Only Corey Spangenberg joins those two at 10% or higher. Everyone else? Not worth looking at. Like we need another reason to avoid Padres. The biggest year-over-year -year go rate decline is in Milwaukee. That's something of a surprise since the team still leads Major League Baseball. But all the burners in Milwaukee are well down from 2016's go rates. Keon Broxton is down to 36% from a whopping 44%. Jonathan Villar down to 21% from 32 And Hernan Perez is down to 8% from 27 Interestingly, Domingo Santana, whom we think of more as a slugger, is up by 10 points to a playable 15% rate. Finally, I must mention Baltimore. The Orioles' increase this year has been modest, just plus 1.3 percentage points. But the resulting 2.7% go rate more than doubles last year. 
when you'll remember their 32 stolen base attempts was the lowest team total since the 1960 Athletics had just 27. If the club maintains this new go rate, we could expect a lot more stolen base attempts, especially if Baltimore base dealers keep swiping at a 78% success rate, which is very beneficial to creating runs, and hugely better than last year's 58%. Now, most of the gain has been focused on two part-timers. Craig Gentry is 3-for-3 three three in stolen base attempts, and Joy Rickard 3-for-4. Of course, the usual rules about small samples apply, and so do some alternative explanations. It might just be some teams went slow in April because of the cool weather. That said, it does look like the teams at the extreme ends of the go-rate gain spectrum could be worth a closer look especially if stolen bases figure in your strategic planning for the rest of this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 19 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, a regular expert guest here on Baseball HQ Radio, an excellent fantasy baseball resource, and a good pal. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute Analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and we have a Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, two T's on the end, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, You'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.